First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. And one thing that my husband always says, he says, you know, you're always so extra. And I think that being extra sometimes has a bad connotation. But I think that when you're in business, you should be thinking about how can I be extra? Because being different is better than just being better. And I actually heard Tyra Banks say that, but it's so true. So you really have to think about how can I make my business, how can I make my product a little bit extra so that one, it stands out and two, that it attracts the type of people I want to attract. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Ligorio Chafkin. Today's episode Go Extra. most basic level, this podcast is all about telling the story of a founder. But also, we sometimes talk about the very art of telling your story. It's not just about re-examining what you've gone through that's important to your own journey, but it's also finding the right way to tap into it to help your business or passion find its footing. Our guest today is fascinating and insightful for many reasons. For one, she knows a lot more about what Gen Z wants from both companies that will employ them and brands they buy from than most of us. But also, like Charity Water's Scott Harrison, whom we've also spoken to on this show, she learned, over time, the power of telling her story. I bring that up because it's a great one. And if I don't now, you might miss the fact that she's built it into her brand. Courtney Newell graduated college in 2008 during the recession, and she didn't have much of a plan beyond getting a job. But after sending out 200 resumes, she still didn't get one. So to make a buck, she did a thing she had experience at. She tried to win a beauty pageant. She'd gotten Miss Congeniality plenty of times, but this time she really wanted the money from a win. And she did take home the crown, and she also took home $500 to start her company, which she then called Crowned Marketing and Communications. Now, it's a company that specializes in advising brands in cultural communications, multi-generational marketing, and basically how to not mess all that up. She's also the author of Future Proof, the blueprint for building a brand Gen Z and millennials love. Before she started, she did have one gig, a temp job. Even though she was great at it, when Courtney tried to turn it into a full-fledged position, she got denied. I remember going home crying, like tears, mascara running down my face, just so heartbroken and going home to my mom, because I lived with my mom at the time, a post-graduation, a very millennial thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and she says, you know, is that, is that really what you wanted to do? And I said, no, I really want Mark. I want really want to be in marketing and PR. And she says, well, then you should create your own business. It didn't even come to me that that was an opportunity. It, it wasn't even in the realm of possibilities, but she says, you know, you, what do you have to lose? 
you know, you have a room here, you're not paying any bills yet. Loans were deferred still. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I went for it and, um, and I competed for, I competed in a local Miss America scholarship pageant and won. And I used that $500 to fuel the, to fuel my company, Crown Marketing and Communications. Wow. Did you do that? Did you enter that pageant with the idea? Like I can, I can make a little money here and start something? Yeah. I mean, I went in and I had been competing in pageants. That's really how I paid my way through college. Um, and I think that was probably like my 25th pageant or something crazy like that. <laughs> but so you knew the I, lay of the land at that point. <laughs> yeah. I kind of knew the lay of the land. I had competed in that pageant twice before, but I went in this time with a completely different focus. It wasn't about being Miss America. That wasn't the goal. The goal was I need to get this money. I need to win this this prize so that I can start my business. So I was focused. I was like, you know, I have to win this money. This is going to be my legacy. And, and I actually won. So it was a game changer. That's incredible. So you took that title and you took that money and you, you started the process of launching your company. Um, people don't often talk about the actual meat and potatoes of, of starting something like what were your first steps technically, you know, how did you do it? Yeah. So the first step was a lot of research. I had to actually find out how do I legally set this up? I think a lot of business owners go wrong with not having a proper business structure. So I actually hired an attorney with my little measly $500. Um, I hired, hired an attorney and they filed the paperwork for me. We had a consultation. They walked me through, you know, this is, these are the different types of business structures. This is some of the, these are some of the things that you need to be thinking about. And, um, i worked with my attorney at the time and really set that up. That cost me about $150. And I printed out business cards. Thanks to Vistaprint. I paid maybe like, you know, $20 to get that done. Um, and I actually had a friend of mine, we bartered, I would do um, marketing for him if he created a website for me. So he created my first website. Um, man, it was really ugly. If I have to be honest, <laughs> going back, it was so ugly, but it got the job done. And then I, I hit the ground running. I went to every networking event that I could find. I went knocking on doors of small business owners. And, um, and I just really focused on, I have to get my first 10 clients. I have to get my first 10 clients because that to me was the mark of, if I can get my first 10, then I know I can get my next, I, I can get a hundred. If I can get a hundred, you know, that basically was my, was my marker. And it took me about four months to get my first 10 clients. But within the first month, I had my first five clients. Wow, that's incredible. And what kind of work did you start out doing? And how has that grown over the years, over the last decade? Yeah, so I started off doing social media marketing. And at the time, there were no Facebook business pages. There was no Instagram. And I was really finding myself having to convince local business owners that this was the wave of the future. And kind of being... <laughs> The feedback that I heard from them was, you know, I think this is a fad, you know, my space was so popular and it's gone now. And, you know, this Facebook thing is going to be gone soon too. And I'm like, no, this is revolutionary. This is really how people connect online. So that was really what we started doing. Um, and that process took a little bit longer. So what I actually was doing was fundraising, which is what I was doing in that role that um, at the local nonprofit that I was working for. So I started off doing fundraising and then quickly added in there, hey, I know that you want me to do the fundraising, but I really think that you should be also including social media marketing. And they weren't paying for it at that point. So it was almost a benefit to them of extra bonus. And that's when I really started to 
to grow that part of the business. So those clients, my first five clients are actually still my clients today. And we still do the same services of social media marketing and event planning for them. Wow, that's great. Um, and so you're in South Florida. Um, how, when did you hire your first employees and how has the growth of the company gone as well? Yeah. So I hired my first employee about year three. So for all that time, it was just me um, behind the scenes doing everything, all of the, all of the great work. Um, But I hired my first employee three years in and then really quickly after hired the second. And now we have a team of about 20 people um, and we're doing some amazing work. We work with a lot of fortune 1000 companies now, but we also are really passionate about working with small business owners because that really is important. And I think that the corporations are going to be okay if they don't necessarily future-proof, but the small businesses really drive and fuel the country and the economy. So I'm really passionate about helping them be able to future-proof their businesses. Great. You mentioned future-proof, which is the title of your book. And I do want to talk about that in just a moment. But first, I want to take your mind back again to the time period that you, when you started up 2008, we were in a recession. And also right now, we are in a really difficult economic time in the United States um, and you know globally too for small business. But classically, kind of during these times of recession, um, a lot of entrepreneurship, or at least a little bit more of it, comes from a different place. It's not people taking these crazy shots for the moon. It's folks starting out of necessity, which is exactly what you did. What advice would you have for someone starting up up now um, who maybe, you know, maybe doesn't have a lot of resources? Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. One thing that happens is when you're, a lot of businesses have shut down, unfortunately. And what tends to happen is there are people who fall, they're, they're feeling broken. They're feeling like, oh, I, I feel defeated. I don't know if I can go forward. And then you have those who are really thinking about, hmm, I think that if I can take this problem that I now have that I may not have noticed before. And if I could see that other people have that, maybe I can turn that into a business. So I think that the key when it comes to reinventing yourself, which a lot of people are having to do right now, is really being able to have a proof of concept. What I don't recommend is going through and creating this whole big juncture and then not having any proof of concept. So I always like to start small. I always like to, again, go back to my first 10. I like to see if I can prove the case and see if I can get people to buy into, at least 10 people to buy into the new idea that we have. And we, some of the clients that we work with, we had clients who had event companies, like large mass scale event planning companies, and they had to pivot. And now they're doing PP, they're doing PPE and have built successful businesses off of that. Um, But one thing that we worked on with them is really making sure that they saw, hey, do you actually have people who want to do it? And at that point, the market wasn't as saturated as as it has become. Um, So I would say that that first 10 and just having that proof of concept. And one thing that my husband always says, he says, you know, you're always so extra. And I think that being extra sometimes has a bad connotation. But I think that when you're in business, you should be thinking about how can I be extra? Because being different is better than just being better. And I actually heard Tyra Banks say that, but it's so true. So you really have to think about how can I make my business, how can I make my product a little bit extra so that one, it stands out and two, that it attracts the type of people I want to attract. So I would say that first 10 is key. Yeah. It's so smart to think of that. Like what already makes me stand out and how can I push that even further? Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, That's really great. Um, so 
what you really stuck a stake in the ground in terms of um, the type of marketing that that you do, you help companies with, and you teach multicultural and multi generational marketing, right? Um, so many companies went through a reckoning this year and and began to put a um, put an effort into multi generational marketing. But I want to break down what that is first, and what the heck is is Gen Z, right? Like you've written about this. You're an expert on how to market to the youngest consumers, but I think you have a really fascinating and nuanced take on, on how to do so. So just tell, tell me a little bit, like what's the difference between a millennial or millennials and Gen Zers? Yeah. So millennials get kind of categorized as anyone who is under the age of 40. And I'm like, no, that's not what it is. So really there's, there's some debate on when the actual line between Gen Z and millennials start, but we like to say it's anywhere around the age of 22 currently and lower. So the difference a lot of times with millennials is we emerged with um, with social media, with technology versus Gen Z who they've always had it at their fingertips. Smartphones were essentially a way of life. So the way that they operate is very different and very unique. With Gen Z, when it comes to marketing and reaching them, one of the things that they're really passionate about is making sure that you get permission to market to them versus millennials. They're, it's not necessarily necessarily a requirement. And so they're a little bit more cautious when it comes to internet and when it comes to social media channels and when it comes to sharing their personal information. Yeah, yeah, they were gr- they were they were raised in an atmosphere of this education about the ills of social media and about the perils of of online, you know, r- responsible uh news consumption, responsible social networking, right? They're Absolutely. probably smarter than all of us. Um <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> And, and so how do you, I mean, how can a company or, or um, anyone really market to, to folks who are very hesitant to give up their data or information or, um, or, or necessarily opt in to something? Yeah. So one thing that we're really always thinking about is how can we create community? Because when you have a community around your cause or behind your business or your product, then you're really able to say, hey, you're not just signing in to have me email you every day and, you know, and and try to get you to buy from me. You're really opting into this community. Another thing that comes along with that community is that there's partnerships, there's networking, there's um, this collaboration and feel that Gen, Gen Z really appreciate and like. And then also with that community is being heard and having opportunities for customization. So all of those are really important. So with brands that are trying to connect with Gen Z, they really should be focused about how can we create a community around our brand and how can we connect everyone inside of that community and create a place where people actually want to be connected and feel like it's a safe space for them to collaborate. Your company's other focus is on multicultural marketing, and I imagine a lot of big companies have come to you this year uh, for help on that. Can you talk about the foundations of of that for you and um, and kind of the work that you do now? Yeah, so we have coined the term culture communications. And what culture communications really is, is helping brands be able to infuse culture into their messaging and into their marketing. Because when they don't really think about those things, we have scenarios where you have offensive advertising and you have people who are saying, we want to cancel this brand. And ultimately, at the end of that is someone who's really hurt, someone who is offended, and someone who feels like a brand that they loved for many years oftentimes didn't really connect with them and didn't really care about them. So 
when we think about cancel culture, it's really a it's really an effect of not having culture communications infused into not just your marketing, your messaging, but really in the decision making process. Because if you have someone on your team, on your board, on your advice in your advisory council, um, you're able to really think through, hey, before we send this out or before we before we um, share it with anyone, is this something? Is there any way that this can be seen seen as offensive? Or is there anything that we're missing? And so what we do is we bring what we like to call the culture lens to the table to really share and see, hey, this may be offensive to this demographic or this term, you may not know it, but this has a really, it has a a troublesome history with this specific demographic. When it comes to being future-proof, you really do have to think about culture and inclusivity, but even deeper than just having it in your marketing and let's say you have it and and people a lot of times say, okay, well, we'll just have more diverse people in our on our Instagram feed. And it really goes a lot deeper than that. But we really help brands be able to pinpoint where they're where they are and things that they need to be doing in order to to take their brand into the future. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I imagine it's not just about like not offending people. It should be about creating a really inclusive brand, right? And and actually speaking to everyone, not not excluding any group, right? How how can a company move from just trying to like the, do the bare minimum and not cause a fire on the internet or <laughs> in their in their brand and and actually uh, do work that includes more um, more consumers and and more um, you know just more viewpoints. Yeah. And I think that that's the problem is when you've been doing something for so long, you know, old habits die hard. It's really difficult for you to even fathom sometimes that, hey, there may be a different, maybe the demographics are shifting, which they are, um, or maybe, hmm, maybe we should actually change this, or maybe we should infuse some new talent into our, into our pool of talent, into our advisory board, um, into our leadership, into our management so that we can really have these diverse perspectives and not just diverse as far as culture goes. But as far as age goes, um, gender, all of these things are really are really important when we're talking about being future-proof because when you look at things through all these different lenses and you're really able to create something that creates an environment that everyone feels that they're heard, that they can connect, that they're, that they're cared about. And that builds that brand affinity and keeps them as your customer for, for lifetimes oftentimes. And as we talk about inclusive messaging, this isn't just some trend that you jumped on. It was personal to you, right? So when it comes to inclusivity and in the marketing, it really was deep and something that I cared so passionately about because for the longest time, I didn't see it in marketing and I didn't see it in media. I didn't see it in advertising. And when I did some research, I realized that a lot of times it wasn't for it. What the lack of inclusivity was a lot of times because there weren't any, there was no diversity on the decision-making panel. There was no diversity in the boardroom when the advertisement was being created. There was no diversity in the graphics department when the graphics were being created. And so what happens when you have that lack of diversity, it shows in the end product. And you have, I mean, we've seen it, we're seeing it constantly and regularly um, with brands that are fumbling, but now the costs are so much higher. And so brands really have to be thinking about, hey, is this offensive? Is this inclusive? And is it actually a part of our brand? Because if it's a part of, if it's something that you're just trying to do right now, 
it's going to be a trend. It's going to be something that, you know, you're onto the next trend. But if it's something that you actually bake into your DNA, you're going to be able to attract the right employees. You're going to be able to build relationships with your clients that they feel like they're a part of your, they they feel like they're a part of your community and you're really able to scale your business beyond measure because you have that community and you have that consistency and you have that, that culture that really pulls people in versus any of your competitors. When we come back, I'll talk with Courtney about which brands are embracing inclusive marketing. But first, a quick break. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So Courtney, marketing is not just putting a brand or a label on something. It is building a healthy company that can then build the right products and the right message, right? I mean, this is, it's core to the existence of a company. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the messaging really only, it only shows what is actually a part of the company. So if, when I look at, when I look at an advertisement, when I look at even a graphic that I see like a flyer, I can tell what the company stands for. A lot of times I can tell what's important to them. And I think too, it even goes deeper because when we're thinking about a lot of times we think about advertisements and the Super Bowl was like, was for, for marketers and advertisers, it was like our, our big thing, not the actual game, of course, but all the commercials (laughs) and, um, you know, and so when I'm thinking through what that looks like, there was, there were so many brands that still missed the mark. And there were so many brands that people felt disappointed by. And, you know, I will say this, it's, there's like a fine line because I feel like brands are trying, but they're, they're doing the wrong things. And, um, and so you really just want to make sure that whatever your brand represents is highlighted in your marketing. It's not the other way around, because if you're trying to market and say, Hey, we're, we're inclusive. We, we celebrate culture. We, we celebrate diversity and inclusion. Um, but then your company culture is totally is missing the mark and there's no diversity in your leadership and there are no sort of initiatives around that, then what happens is people can, people see that. And then you actually end up oftentimes on, on the list of the cancel lists where people are like, you know, I feel like this brand is really missing the mark here. So in order to really be able to attract those next wave of customers, you really have to be thinking about it from not just the marketing standpoint, but also from the company culture standpoint. 100%. So have companies been coming to you this year and and looking internally as well saying, hey, we, how do we build an inclusive and equitable culture? How do we fix ourselves first? Have you been doing that kind of advising as well? 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the past, (laughs) since I want to say around, and we've been doing this work for about the past five years is when we really started to focus. And that was our, our main focus. Um, and so we were doing really great, but I would say around February or March of 2020, things really soared for us. Um, and now we're working with many large multinational global brands, um, to really help them do internal audits, really assessing their internal and external communications, what their company culture looks like. And we're working with leadership a lot of times, really providing training and access to tools and communication toolkits and so on and so forth to really be able to not just, because I feel like sometimes what can happen is a brand can say, hey, we know we have a problem you know, fix it for us. Um, But what we like to do is really go deeper and we like to actually assess where they are and assess where there are possible um, holes in in their ship per se. And then what we do there is we really focus on not rebuilding a whole new ship, but instead really patching it up and making it better than it was before. Right. Are you of the mindset that it's it's easier just to start from the start and and like just burn it down, build a new culture. Uh, because, you know, a lot of folks are have uh, told me lately, like, if you don't build it equitably from the start, like, it's very, very hard to repair those holes. It's almost impossible. Or do you think it can be done? And have you seen any any good examples of companies doing that and really begin the transformation process? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it really depends. So I would say that if you can, from the start, build it definitely. But I think that there's a lot of times some hidden gems in the existing culture that you can infuse into the new company culture. So I don't necessarily think you have to completely burn it down and start from scratch. But I do think, though, once you do, and I always, we're really big on assessments and audits to just make sure that you have an understanding of how we got here. Because if you don't know how you got there and and why you're here now, You can build a new one from scratch, but you will very soon be back in that same place. Um, So one thing that we definitely recommend is doing an audit and an assessment. And another thing that I think is really important is to make sure that you have a a collective group inside of your organization that's not just marketing, that's not just HR, that's not just the C-suite, but really from all the different groups inside of an organization and all the different levels. So we have entry level, we have senior level, we have management, we have, you know, C-suite, because that gives all those different perspectives and it allows you to really see a 360 degree view of the company and some possible holes in the organization. But I think to answer your question, it depends on the organization. I do think that it needs to be a focus. So if you are able to start from scratch, then by all means, definitely do that. But if you are unable to start from scratch, I definitely recommend doing an audit and an assessment so you can really see where your brand is now, how you got there and ways that you will fix those wherever those holes exist, how you can fix them to make sure it doesn't ever happen again. So are there any big brands out there that that you think have done a really good job of, of shifting their messaging, of transforming it and being really, really up to the moment and inclusive? Yeah. So I think the automotive industry as a whole has done a really great job. I think General Motors, GMC has done a really great job with not only their leadership, but also in their messaging, in the ads that they put out, um, and in also the initiatives that they have. So I think that Ford, Toyota, um, General Motors, they all have really robust supplier diversity programs. Um, They are parts of the billion dollar roundtable, which means they have spent over 
a billion dollars with diverse suppliers. Um, and so I think that that really shows their company culture is it's not just a trend for them. It's something that they're invested in and they know that it's something that's important to their overall consumers, but it's also important to the company. So I would say those three companies have done a really great job. And honestly, it's been not just for the past five or six years, I would say it's been for the past um, 20, 30 years that they've been doing a really good job on, on making sure that they're that they're focused on inclusivity and diversity. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I wouldn't have thought about them right away, but um, but yeah, that's that's really interesting. And who still has work to do in terms of maybe in terms of industries? One company that I think has a lot of work to do um, is Trader Joe's. Last year, Trader Joe's had a lot of backlash around um, Trader Ming's and them identifying certain brands. Yes, that one was a long is a long time coming. I've always thought like, why are there um, sort of accented names and and ethnically like suggestive product names. It's strange. Yeah. And that it kind of came to a head last year. Um, and they still, even after public back backlash, they still did not change any of it, which really spoke to the lack of concern uh, for a lot of their consumers. So I think that they specifically have a lot of work to do. I think that another brand that had a lot of backlash last year that is is making is trending in the right direction is Starbucks. Um, Starbucks, of course, made news with not letting um, their their baristas wear anything that had to do with Black Lives Matter. And what happened from that was a, a backlash and them, them being on the cancel culture list. Um, but what they did instead is they created, they really focused on creating community. And that alone was a real sign that they were, they were trying to do, um, not necessarily trying to do the right thing, but they were trying to really create um, a safe space where they can ask their employees where they can ask their stakeholders or customers, you know, what is it that you're looking for? How can we support you um, with the things that are important to you? So I think, again, it comes back to community and really being able to have the conversation. What you can't do as a brand is make decisions in a bubble and think that, you know, when you go outside into the marketplace um, that, you know, everyone will understand and everyone will be in alignment with you. It's really important to do the work ahead of time before you roll out the campaign, before you um, before you send anything out, before you create any sort of announcement. It's really important to do the work before any of that happens to really make an educated decision and an educated movement um, or create an educated movement. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we saw this with Starbucks too, that they had to take this PR mess that they had and look inside themselves. And they held like a full day of trainings across all locations and that community building, like you said, they had to turn it back to themselves and say, what's wrong? How do we fix this? Let's talk to our employees. Let's talk to our stakeholders and let's have some real, start some real communications about this. Absolutely. And let's actually include our, our supplier diversity department. Let's include our, um, our diversity, equity, and inclusion division. And let's really have those conversations. A lot of times what happens is brands have, um, DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, departments or one specific person. But a lot of times, and I've had many a conversation with people in those roles, a lot of times they feel like they're just a figurehead. Like they're not, they have no power. They're really not called on um, for anything outside of, you know, maybe going to specific events or speaking at certain events. So when you're able to really include that person, that department, those roles, then you're really able to have a company that 
cares about your employees and actually cares about your consumers. So I think that that's something that's super important to make sure that you're, you're thinking about as a brand. Yeah, absolutely. And make that DEI position, right? Be, be an, an executive level is, is another idea, right? Like have that be a more, a very, like a big stakeholder. Absolutely. And you know, the thing about it is a lot of brands are starting to do it, but it was something that should have been done a long time ago. But there are also so many brands that may have someone, but it's not a C-level position. So I definitely think that that's something that needs to be considered going forward. So you're in your book, Future Proof, which you wrote sort of to help open the eyes of, of marketing executives, what did you learn um, when, when researching that and, and writing it? Um, were there any, any conclusions you came to that changed your mind on anything too or that, um, oh, oh, that, that were big learnings on your part? Yeah, I learned so much in the research of that book and I absolutely love some of the gems that I found. But I think the first thing was that Gen Z and millennials are very different. Um, I went into it thinking, knowing that they were different, but really identifying what made them different. I think that that was a, was a eye opener for me. I think the other thing that was an eye opener was the importance of and the importance of not just community, but the importance of being able to have that collaboration and feel like you're co-creating things with a brand that you like, it just helps to build brand affinity. So let's say, for example, you are a paper straw company. If you have some way that you can have your brands, um, you have a, a way for your consumers to vote on the next design or vote and and help you pick the next shirt design. And you, Starbucks has done this before. But I think that those things really help build brand affinity and little things. They don't have to cost you a lot. Um, it just really allows your customers to feel like they're heard and also your employees to feel like they have a place to be heard and voice their opinions, like they're a part of the organization. And then that's really the third thing is when you allow that collaboration and you create community, you have buy-in from people and they want to see it through. So, and that really is across millennials and Gen Z, but I think the, and I, I know I said that was the final one, but I would say this is the final one. Is <laughs> it's okay. You can go on. There's, there's no limit to things you can have learned from <laughs> writing a book. <laughs> so I would say the other thing too, is, you know, um, multicultural marketing is really not just about, um, it's not just about wanting to market to or include certain demographics. I think that one of the misconceptions is, okay, if we want diversity, then that means let's infuse more Black people um, or let's infuse more Asian people. And it's really deeper than that. It's really about including everyone. It's really about including people who look different, people who I have um, who have their own unique identification, who, um, who see themselves through a different lens and really creating a space for them to feel like they are included and that they're not excluded. Because when you don't do, when you don't do the work and you just don't have an inclusive brand, it actually makes people feel like you don't want them to be your customer. And, and that's really one of the things that, that I learned from writing the book. That's fantastic, Courtney. If you look back to when you were starting out, the first three years when you were just working by yourself and didn't know what the future was going to hold for you and and your company, which is now 20-some people strong and works with some of the biggest companies in the U.S., like, what would you have told yourself looking back? Man, I think back to that girl. And she had these big dreams and was so worried about 
all the competition out there and didn't know if I was going to make it. And we just celebrated 10 years last month. I would tell her that you have what it takes to do it. You can do the great work. Don't give up, but really make sure that you focus on your unique value, what you bring to the market, your unique perspective, and highlight that in everything that you do. Even if it feels weird, even if you feel like no one's going to get it, still highlight that and infuse your personality as much as possible. I think that for a long time, I... I didn't want to be the face of the company. I was like, I didn't want people to think, you know, oh, pageant girl, because I feel like there are stereotypes attached to that. Um, but then I really leaned into it and I, I made it a part of my founding story. And then I was really able to attract the right people who were like, oh, I really, I connect with that story. So I would say that if I knew what I knew now, I would have been infusing that story into everything that I did. I would have inserted myself into it. I would have not looked at competitors and said, hmm, well, they're doing it this way. Let me do it that same way. I would have really done that self-work and those internal audits to make sure that what I'm producing is actually true to, to what I, who I am and, and what I'm trying to build. I love that. Courtney Newell, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Christine. After talking with Courtney, I just love that she started out without that confidence that you might think every business owner must inherently possess. Literally, her mom had to tell her to start the business. And then she was able to channel her miscongeniality skills and the advice from Tyra Banks to be a little bit extra into all that her brand is today. She's studied generational habits, tastes, and trends, and those across cultures. And she has become a trusted advisor to brands large and small in nailing their advertising and marketing. And doing something really important, helping companies build diversity, equity, and inclusivity, not just into the messages they spread, but into their workspaces and ethos. You can also tell just from listening to her that she's an optimist. She actually thinks it's possible to achieve meaningful change, even within big established organizations. Yes, it's hard. It's easier to start with equity as a tenant, but with the right work, it can be done. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine, If you're a new listener, welcome. Please hit subscribe to What I Know so you don't miss our next episodes. If you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, please send them a link to our show. And if you have an idea of a founder you'd love to hear on this show, please drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. You can also let me know on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who also loves to quote Tyra Banks, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Tapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.